Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Thanks, man. How you doing? I'm doing fine. And you are just back from Dallas, and we are back for the fall season of the Playground Podcast. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. And we are presented by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media. And today... We're going to do some classic play. We have got Bill Nichols and Peter Schmiel, who are the co-presidents of Blip Toys, to talk to us. And you probably know Blip Toys. They did the Live Dolls. They did Squinkies. And they have my single favorite toy of this year, personally. The kind of thing that I would have liked. The only thing it doesn't have is explosives. But it's kind of explosive. Uh, I mean, like cherry bombs and stuff. It's called Zip Links, and we're going to get into it. Uh, but first, guys, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having us. We're thrilled to be here. Thank you. Love it. So let's talk about my favorite toy, Zip Links. When I saw that, it's it's basically a bunch of interlocking links, and it's very simple. And it's, they're held together with rubber bands, and you interlock the links. And then after you've built a pattern, you sort of hit the button, and they all blow up, which is just awesome and it's kind of like domino rally and creative how did this come about we do a lot of development here and, and as you're aware we've, we've been in the toy business in several different ways starting with invention and uh, as inventors and so we look to the outside uh, quite a bit to find innovations and in this particular case this concept and, and product came to us from the outside and and we fell in love with it just like you did it's it's really quite magical because it's something that we've just simply never seen before. And talking about, you know, classic play pattern is it's, you know, it's a dominoes type product. It's a setup. There's a creativity involved. And then the reaction is the payoff is amazing. It really hits a lot of things um, in today's world. We like to use the word STEM with it a little bit, but not too much because that can be a little bit tricky. But there's absolutely amazing physics involved and uh, a great learning process. So it just has so much potential. We're so excited. Well, I've always felt that the strength of the construction demands a question. Why is there no destruction now? And children love to build, and they love to blow up. Can you tell us a little bit about the destruction piece of this and why it's attractive? When we first got it and we reviewed it and we looked at it, the two words came right to us, and it was exploding domino. Everybody knows what a domino is, and this is basically an exploding domino. And dominoes, you can link, you can build, you can set patterns, you can do all of that. So this just took it to another level that we were just so excited about. And then it came, where can we go beyond this? Because you can play with dominoes, you can play just with only zip links, you can mix and match with a lot of other things around the house, which kids love to do. But the exploding piece of it and the ultimate immediate reaction is what we were so excited about. So then when you look at the sets, we thought, well, what else can we do? So we wanted to put delay levers in there because part of the problem with dominoes is if you build a domino set and you accidentally bump one, oh man, you got to start all over. Well, these lock, they don't, you can drop them. So they kind of have the safety mechanism, but when you start linking them all together, it just takes it to a level. And we thought, Let's build things that have delays in them. So we built these big armatures where a zip link goes up and then it slows the process down so people can stop, look, and they just keep getting moments of aha on there. Just super fun. 
I think one of the things that's so important is it's very empowering for kids and it really does put them at the center of the play experience. And that's one of my one of my soapboxes. I don't have any use for toys that aren't complete without the child. So you can wind it up, go have a sandwich and come back and, you know, the toy is still doing what the toy does. That's a lot of what you guys do is you put the kids at the center of the play experience. What's your philosophy of play or and how have you developed it over the years? We really do try to put the kid front and center. So we do have a process internally and we call it IIDD. And what it is, it's an acronym for identify, innovate, develop, and deliver. So I'll just quickly walk through what each one of them means to us. Identifying is the easiest part. We all identify great ideas. You go to a barbecue and everybody's got a great idea. Ideas are easy in our mind, but it's finding that idea and what the question is, is what's unique? How is it special? So the easy part's identifying. The next part is innovating. Then we go through the process of how do we innovate this item? How can we make it different? How can we make it special? What's unique about it? What's different? Then we go quickly to the development part. And the development part is how can it be made? How does it get costed? How do we go through that process? And then the last part of delivery, it's not about just putting it on a truck and sending it to the store. The delivery is, okay, how do we package it? How do we get that message across from that first thing that we identified? Is it easy? So it's just this whole IIDD, but we've been really true to that throughout all of our years and just really trying to stay to that mantra. And we run everything through that particular process. You both obviously have a very rich and mature sense of play, toys, and the business of play. Can you each give us a quick bio of your journey, including the origin of the name, Blip? Backstory of me, Bill. So I started in the toy industry out of college, and I started with Hasbro back in the 80s. And I'm telling you, it was an absolute wonderful education, big house, everything these guys did turned to gold. This was the very first G.I. Joe, My Little Pony, Transformers. I was very fortunate to be part of that and experience it. I just wish I would have invested $500 back then because I probably wouldn't be sitting here, but I didn't. And I learned so much from them on the big house standpoint. Then I left that and I went to work for a rep firm still within the toy industry. For me personally, that's where my education really happened. Dan Bucky Associates. So now I went from Hasbro, the biggest player in the business, to working with all of these small to medium companies and they all needed help. They loved ideas. They wanted ideas. And I started working with them. And for me, that was just, oh, I'm a frustrated developer. I'm a salesman uh-huh. where the House won't listen to me. So then I went from Dan Bucky Associates to we started our own firm toying around, and then we started the development of Blip. So it was just a very natural progress, but um, I'm just so enamored with the development, the toy, and also the sales piece of it. But I felt feel so fortunate um, that we were able to tie in and get the education um, from the big houses. So my background is uh, design. So I went to college for product design, and I ended up Uh, having an internship and working with an ex-Tonka toys uh, person. There was a fair amount of um, ex-Tonka people in the Minneapolis area. So just a lot of synergies in the toy industry. So just got the bug and um, worked as a designer for invention. And so the crossover came when I met Bill because I was a frustrated inventor and a designer 
who felt like they were designing in a vacuum, not knowing what retail wanted, not really understanding. And so, you know, hooking up with Bill, it gave me the criteria to say, okay, this is what Target's looking for. This is what retail's looking for. And then I could focus my efforts. And how um, did we come up with Blip? Very intentional. We are a blip on the radar. <laughs> we we love it that people don't really understand us, don't know everything we do. We're not up in the forefront and, and we work very hard to just be a blip on the radar. We're there. We're constantly doing stuff. And we just work very intently to just stay humble, stay under the radar and just try to keep coming out with some great product. I was hoping that there was an Arnold Blipstein. It <laughs> mysteriously disappeared. But this story will do. <laughs> I'm sorry. So what, as a small company, what are the advantages of, for you guys as a small company, as opposed to, as you call the big house of Hasbro? The single biggest advantage is, and the way that we always looked at ourselves is we are a speedboat amongst the cruise ships. The big houses are cruise ships, and we've all been on a cruise ship, and they're slow to turn, slow to react. They're great. They're beautiful. They serve great food, but they can't react to the needs immediately. As a smaller company, that's what our job was. It was just being quick reaction, listening, being intentful, and then moving and hitting the market and coming to market so much quicker than they can. Because we can reduce all the timelines because we were smaller and everything. But that's really been the big thing is just um, speed to market against all of those big cruise ships. When you talk about working with smart players, that is initially a humbling experience. Many of us confuse ourselves with the company we work for. And then we suddenly find out maybe not as many people answer the phone. But it's a wonderful learning process because you really learn how to market, how to engage. And that's a lot of what I experienced with Hasbro. When I walked in with the Hasbro card, I had the attention and everybody was there and it's, you know, we were the big player. And then when I left and I started representing all of these smaller companies, they didn't care. They're like, oh, I don't get the appointment. You don't want to have that. And you had to come up with reasons. But exactly what you said, that's where my education happened. And you learn to get better and you got stronger and all that. So part of what I tried to do with that when Peter and I teamed up is we're very involved with everybody within our company. And we just try to make sure that it's it's easy to compartmentalize and then you can start separating things. But as soon as you start doing that, you lose the fun and you lose the core and the heart of a lot of what we try to put in everything we do. And, and I would add to that, that the point is it does make you better because, you know, we're, we're not Hasbro. We're not Mattel. We, we don't have the power that these companies have. So we have to be better. Well, what does that mean? I mean, we always believe product is king. We have to come with them with innovation, with great stuff, stuff that they can't turn away, that they have to say, wow, this is great stuff. Because those cruise ships don't often innovate as much as they probably would like to because they're managing brands. And so there's that fine line, right? And so I think it motivates us to just make great product and great pricing. And like Bill said, speed. We can we can go to a Target and Walmart and say, yeah, but we can we can have this for you in you know 90 days. I was just in Dallas. When I talked to people about the show schedule for 2023, 
We're going to have two new shows in February, Astra and Toy Fest. Of course, we are going to have Toy Fair in September. We may have Hong Kong. How do you make decisions as where to invest in terms of working these shows? So first off, we're a smaller player. So unfortunately, we have to be followers in this part of the business of where the timing is because we're not big enough to do that. So we were in LA, then we're down in Dallas. And then to your point, we're going to have two no shows. We will find a way to be there because it's important to be there. But for us, it's about the timing to make sure. Um, We love Hong Kong, by the way. And what we love about Hong Kong, it's a great follow-up time period because the Hong Kong timing is always late, but it's a really good time because it's post Christmas. So you really know what you've dealt with right now. We don't know what we're dealing with. So from our standpoint, we do the best we can. We don't have a seat at the table that says, Hey, we're going to do this. The big guys are demanding a lot of that within the toy association. So we're followers to be there, but we're, we're very thankful that we have the opportunity. And most importantly, we're so thankful that we're back into this in-person meetings because it's so much better to actually see react and have conversations. And we learn so much from talking to not just buyers, but everybody that comes through of what we can learn on other things. But so we're very supportive of all the shows and we'll just, we'll spread thin where we have to, and we'll beef up where we think it's best. And what are you finding is the climate out there right now? I know that there have been shipping problems and things getting on the shelf. I mean, it's not, it's not over yet. What is the climate out there, especially if you're trying to put new stuff on the shelf when there's other inventory that perhaps hasn't moved through? That's probably not even yours. What were people telling you in Dallas? Let, let me let me roll over my crystal ball. Yeah, I know. I know. I always ask those questions. I know. No. Well, thank you for acknowledging that, because, by the way, things are getting better and things look good. Yes, there's issues and challenges with the economy. But you're right. Container costs are coming down. Shipments are starting to move a little bit better. But there's heavy inventories at retailers. So things aren't transitioning as quickly. People want to be more focused on what the SKUs are. So maybe you're not getting as many SKUs on the shelf. So it's still difficult, but the reality is it's always been difficult. The challenge for us is to join the journey. And what I mean by that is we have to be solution providers and not sitting back and going, oh, well, everybody's having this problem. We try to step back and go, okay, how can we get it there? So what do we need to do? Do we need to come up with a different format of how we're going to sell it in or a different price point, or here's a different promotion of where we can go. Um, We're always going to have all of those trials and tribulations, but you're exactly right. It's not over, but we're always going to have those challenges. I want to shift gears for a second because you guys are arguably the fathers of the current collectible boom. And you, you created the squinkies and it's been what, 11 years, almost going on 12 years since the squinkies left. And now we see collectibles everywhere. How come you're not doing collectibles now? You guys have the, <laughs> you've got the grooves for it. Well, specifically with squinkies, we do have some plans that that we hope to bring back near soon. And for the reasons you just mentioned with COVID and such, it has been difficult to kind of re-enter that category. And along with that timing, you know, as much as we we know we have great product we can bring. Timing is also crucial beyond with others brands. And LOL obviously has just been an absolute monster, uh, just dominating that retail space. So 
we got to find our timing uh, and make sure we can slot it in at the right time when retailers are ready. But we absolutely love the category and we will be back. What we're doing behind the scenes, and I'll go back to that IIDD, um, Identify, Innovate, Develop, Deliver. So many times big brands just relaunch and they come back. And so many times they just fail because oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they don't take the right approach, and that's identify why, what's different, how do you innovate on what that success is. So we didn't want to just bring Swinkies back because we were first and we were the biggest, and and it's there. And we probably would have gotten some placement, but I don't know that it, it would have stayed. We've got to innovate within it. That's what we're doing, and it's coming soon. You bring up a really good point. You can't just relaunch a brand because your target audience is nostalgic. Or nothing. They haven't been around a long, long enough Amen. to have any kind of nostalgia. So you have to reestablish yourself as if you were new, especially when you're talking to kids. 100%. And thank you for bringing that up. And I think a lot of the big houses don't see that because you keep seeing the same stuff retread every three or four years and it gets listing, but it, it, it doesn't stay. So, um, but yeah, we think innovation is really the key lifeblood. Uh, this generation of parents and children, I'm going to take a position that they're different. A lot of people in the toy industry don't realize how important an issue this is. They are grown up during this pandemic at a time when families seem to be more insular and play together. Am I fantasizing all this? Or are you seeing it? 100% we're seeing it. And every generation is different. And I love what they're trying to do and where they see these things going. So you have to adapt. It's interesting enough that since you bring that up, Gigabots, which is another one that we're launching this year, the whole idea of this Gigabot is it's this boys action category. It's a tough business, right? Big players in there. Well, we were coming into this business with a whole different angle where this energy core, you the toy you buy is the toy. It breaks apart into 33 pieces, builds up to a 13-inch figure, re-breaks back down into that energy core. So it's not like an LOL where 70% of the toy gets thrown away after you open it up and you get something on the inside and here's a surprise. So we really wanted to do something sustainable and something that the kids could play with and they could carry with. But we totally agree that we think that that's a big focus of where they go forward. But you got to pay attention to what the generational attitudes are. What did we not ask you that you would like us to ask? A lot of other people have asked, what's your biggest success? And Peter and I have had a lot of big successes together. And, and I think Peter and I both reside that what we're probably most proud of of everything that we've done is we were fortunate and lucky to have a squinkies and this thing blew up and it was massive but what we were most proud of is that we survived what happens so many times in the toy industry people get a big hit and then they go away trees don't grow to the sky so we learned that but what happened on re-entry re into the atmosphere we survived, we learned so much more, and we just, we keep going. But that's, we're probably more proud of anything that we had an A number one hit, but that we're still going. Right. I, I mean, historically, you look at Coleco, they were an air hockey table company, and then they made this little doll, uh, you know, in, in 83, I think the Cabbage Patch dolls came out, and then they oh. had nothing to follow it out up with. And and they, they grew exponentially and became 
you know, top heavy and, and basically collapsed. How do you guys manage the company to both make room for a hit and not get yourself too uh, overextended if you have a hit? And I think pragmatically, you know, running the business is, you know, some some people want to create this Uber structure and this massive company and and trying to feed that machine. And, and you know, at our peak, we we did grow to a lot of staff and and Bill kind of mentioned it earlier is that that's great and that works for some people, but we lost control of what we wanted to do, which is be involved at the core level with the product. So we have to find a balance to be a certain size that we can still manage and do what we love to do. And we have also spent a lot of years finding a lot of talented people that we can hire on an as needed basis. Mm-hmm. Which, which really helps too, because you can hire a lot of great designers, but one designer might be really great at girls' toys and not really good at vehicles or vice versa. And, and so you got to find that balance where you can go to the right people to do the right things when you need it. So it sounds like what your, your management structure or your stylist is to be able to remain flexible, to be able to respond and, and not create the kind of corporate hierarchies that some of the publicly traded companies have. 100%. So what we have done on certain areas, if we create brands, we will flip them. We will build in other areas. So just as much as we work with outside inventors, we'll also work, as you had mentioned at the very beginning, the Live Doll. So, you know, the Live Doll was one that we created and then sold to Spin Master. So we'll work on both areas to make sure that Peter and I are staying within the realm that we're comfortable with. And the aspirations are what we love to do, right? The aspirations are great product, fun, new product. What's that next thing? I mean, I think we all who love the toy industry are bitten by that bug that it's constantly changing. It's constantly new. It's, it's, it needs to be innovative. We love that. And in many respects, you're like an old school toy company. You're like the toy companies of the of the post World War II years, who were really product driven. I mean, you look at you look at people like Whammo and Remco and all of all of these companies that, yes. that would have a, a big hit because they were very product centric. And it's it's that small, flexible. I don't want to say in and out because you want to build brands, but but right. there's so many so many buyers out there who want you to be in the branded commodity business. And you're in the toy business, and those are totally different businesses. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the things I say is your business depends on the whims of a seven-year-old, and that's really hard to to model if you're if you're doing projections in a classic way. Oh, we have those discussions. It's like it is our our client changes his mind every day or her mind, and it's difficult. And as you look ahead into 2024, what are what do you see as some of the the challenges that are going to face the toy industry, whether it's in children's play, sociologically, or or for you guys as a company? It's just consolidation. Um, big guys getting bigger, fewer uh, options, fewer retailers out there. Um, the economy is going to be a big issue, but it's just making sure that you, the hardest part is, is getting on shelf and, and it's getting more and more difficult. When you look at this whole generational, it's just, it's separating. Everybody's getting bigger. It's harder to get noticed. So it's just coming up with the right answers, the right ideas. And as I said before, what we try to be more than toy developers is problem solvers. And it's like, okay, everybody's got the same problem. How do we solve that? And it comes down to 
Is there a different way to present it? How do we get attention? Where do we go? How do we go, you know, um, the internet? How do we get this? And how do we get noticed? But there's just a, a lot of different pieces that all come together, if that makes sense. So how does an old school toy company deal with the realities of 21st century marketing and promotion and taste? I think it's one of those things that that you have to be willing to constantly reinvent yourself. For us, who who is not Hasbro and Mattel that doesn't have this mammoth staff, we've got to find the right people to help us. And you know, when it comes to to, to PR and social media and marketing, obviously those levers have changed. TV is important, um, but it's not the same single answer. So, uh, YouTube's and and social media platforms are a huge part of this. And you have to be creative and innovative to to get some voice of that, you know, market share, which is it's never been easy. Um, and it's not just about throwing dollars. You have to be creative. You know, you have to find ways to get people to go, wow, that was a really cool TikTok video or that was really interesting um, and find that magic switch. And what are buyers looking for when you when you go present it to them? Back when I was at CBS Toys 150 years ago, you know, at Toy Fair, we would unveil our advertising schedule. It was mostly fiction, but we unveiled we unveiled it anyhow, and, and we sold against that. What are you What are you selling against now in terms of of media? It's a combination of everything. It it is social media is all of them. It's Instagram. It's Facebook. It's TikTok. It's um, all the way across the board, and you have to have an answer for all of it. They expect an answer. How are you participating? Where are you going to go? And the big thing, it used to be, to your point, you could go in and you could say, Here, here's our game plan. It's a fictional game plan and go forward. No longer are they accepting that. What are you doing? What are the specifics? What's the spend? How are you going to do it differently? So we go in and we test in a lot of the other areas, like say TikTok videos and stuff. And then we'll go in and we'll show them examples of things that were going to be done because everybody says it, proving it and doing it is another thing. So you really got to go in and step it up. Well, it seems to me that ZipLines is the perfect YouTube tool. Did you think of that when you were building the concept? Yes, it was one of the very first thoughts that we said. We said, this thing is going to be perfect for TikTok. And the main reason is kids all have their own cameras and they become editors because it happens so fast, the explosions. So then they, on their cameras, they do it in slow-mo. So if you go on and you type in zip links and you go in, you'll see all of these different videos of kids are creating it and then it's slow-mo. But Absolutely. When we first saw it, Peter and I said, you know what, this is it. And this thing, this thing can just absolutely get blown up on social media. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to ask you guys the question that we ask every guest on season four of the Playground podcast. What were your favorite play experiences growing up? So, Peter, you go first. You're the designer. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, my favorite was related to my favorite toy, which was the Evil Knievel. Um, the stunt cycle. <laughs> yes, the stunt cycle. Uh, you talk about destruction. I tried to destroy that toy, and it was made very well. It, jumping it off stairs and running it wherever you could possibly imagine. It's just there was just so much. There's just so much fun doing that, and 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 making that thing just rip across and make your own jumps and. And obviously there was a lot of TV of the real evil Knievel and the fantasy of what he was doing. So it just, it, 
it brought you home. I could be evil Knievel. I, I, that's such an interesting case study, that toy. I mean, they had to delay it. Uh, it. It was transformative for ideal. But the thing I loved about, I love about the history of that is that it never worked right. I mean, and when it did work right, it was a time to celebrate because it was. That's what kept you playing. It's like, oh, I'm gonna hit it next time. It was was great. Bill, how about you? So I just, I'm just sitting here smiling because I'm going back and in my youth. And there's two very specific ones. Uh, the first one is um, Hot Wheels, and at the time, because of my age, it was really Matchbox into Hot Wheels. Because, but it was it was carrying the cars in my hand and that track. When I'd set the track up down the stairs and let those cars just fly, and the cars are indestructible, nothing's going to. I mean, it was just over and over and over and over. Same play pattern, same repeat. Never got bored, and then just did it. And then as I got older, because that's the other big thing that I've seen is with the generations now, they move in and out much quicker. But for me. A toy that came in that just absolutely mesmerized me was uh, G.I. Joe Kung Fu Grip. <laughs> and I was an older kid at the time, but man, I'm telling you, it was awesome. What's really interesting to me is that those two toys, the Hot Wheels and the Evil Knievel Stunt Cycle, really did set you up for what you guys are doing now. It's really great classic play, kid at the center of the experience, try, trial and error, learning about it, and, and having a blast while you do it. So Peter Smeal, uh, Bill Nichols, co-presidents of Blip Toys, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. This was really fun. Thank, thank you. you. Really enjoyed the time. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are supported by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. We'll see you next time.